Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Dr. David Shorter with us. We'll take calls with David next hour here on Coast to Coast. David, your grandmother had an influence on you as well, didn't she? Yeah, my father was traveling kind of Monday through Friday. I didn't really see him. Um, because he would come home so late or his hours weren't predictable. Oftentimes he had to be out on the missile range in the middle of the night for testing. And so because of that, they just sort of thought it would be best if I lived with someone who was home 24-7. And I was very lucky to have a great-grandmother. Of course, when you're a kid, you don't really know the difference. So to, to me, she was just my grandmother. And she had people come to her house. And she would, you might want to say, work with them on their dreams. She had a, a garden where she had like plants and would make them teas and poultices. Um, she was what in Spanish we would say the curandera or a healer. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hard to believe, but my father's possibly doing top secret UFO research. And I'm spending Monday to Friday with a woman who's healing people, you know, <laughs> sort of Mexican tradition. You could imagine when I got to college, I thought it was really weird. Absolutely. And then this influence on you must have been outstanding for you to carry this with you now where you've made a career out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when I go to mediums and psychics and I ask if I can interview them, if I can record what they're doing and then inter- interview some of their clients and record some of their clients, I think one of the things that has shocked me the most is that inside those conversations, I've had some of the better mediums or psychics have said, oh, yeah, absolutely, your grandmother made this possible for you to show up today or they would just sort of like name. Now I sort of know grandmother is a trope in the psychic medium world. They drop that a lot. Like you have an Indian grandmother or something like that. But in this case, I always find it very interesting because in some ways they are the modern contemporary version of what my grandma was probably doing back then. 
Is your class Alien Psychics and Ghosts at UCLA a credited course? It is not only credited, it's actually one of the few writing two courses. So a student cannot graduate from UCLA without taking writing one and writing two. And Alien Psychics and Ghosts is a writing two class, which means that it's one of the required, it's one of the category of required courses that you actually have to have something from that category. I would guess it's wildly popular, isn't it? (laughs) It fills up in about seven seconds from the moment the registration opens and the wait list is in the hundreds. What are some of the things that you discovered as a professor, as a student, about the paranormal that just boggles your mind? Well, I, I think that I think our contemporary political moment is one of those moments where there's just a huge chasm between what people say is real and what is true, and then the real-life experience of so many other people. So, for example, you know, I, I frequently would have um, Whitley Straber into my class to He's talk to the good guy. I love communion. Whitley. Yeah, Whitley and I had a really great relationship for many years, and he would come and he talked to the students. Or I would have healers. I would have energy workers. I would have witches. I would have mediums come and do psychic readings for the class, right? Or I would have, I would play John Edward, who had, who, who used to have this TV show called Crossing Over, and we would like, we would sort of study him, you know, to the second, pausing the video and seeing what he's doing with his eyes and how the audience is reacting all that stuff. And in that process, you could have 150 students, and it's just really crazy. You'll have 50 who are 100% convinced, and 100 who would not believe it, no matter what you show them. It's as if evidence will not speak to certain people. And I guess in some ways, when you say what surprises me about the study of the paranormal is that it's a reflection of our political contemporary moment where some people are unconvincible. It doesn't really matter what you show them. They've already made up their mind, and they're not going to really change it no matter what you do. What years, David, if you had to speculate, was your father involved with this within the government? Well, he moved up the ranks so that his actual job changed. In 19, I can, I can point to several benchmarks because I have a fairly good memory as a child. In 1979, he's still working. So he's, he had started this job in the mid-60s. By the mid to late 70s, he's still looking at objects that they're bringing to him. He's, being, he's traveling to crash sites. Um, he's sort of on an investigative team, like in helicopters that are flying to where there was a crash site. They're the first to be there. They're sort of looking at where the landing pads are to, to look for bodies. He sometimes sent in the 70s and 80s, early 80s, to go interview people. He, he talked to nurses who saw alien bodies brought in. Um, he interviewed them. He introduced me to one of them so that I could record her. Um, you know, there were all these sort of things you might want to say that you might want to say on the front line. They're, they're sort of doing on-the-ground research. But you fast forward to, like, the 2000s, and I'm already, at that point, a graduate student. He's not doing that sort of stuff. He's managing facilities to make sure that, you know, toxic waste is disposed of properly. So his position changed, but I would say from 1967 to, I'd say, 2002 were the main, you might want to say, decades that he was very active in those programs. Project Blue Book ended in 1969, at least publicly, so there was a little overlap. He might have been aware of that. What do you think? He knew 100% about that. In fact, he thought, yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't said a lot of this publicly yet, but he knew, he knew those people. He knew which parts he would say to me were outright lies. He knew which parts of it were um, perhaps hinting at the closest that we'll ever get to the truth, particularly about certain Air Force bases and what 
they had in their possession that was extraterrestrial, which extraterrestrial-based technologies had been going on to be part of what we now consider our defense industry, what those sort of those sort of engineering big mm-hmm. questions. He knew about those, and he had thought that Project Blue Book was the best possible public face the government could have at the time. He must have known Dr. J. Allen Hynek then. He actually, he actually did know Dr. Um, Heineck. And, and it's interesting because my father, they, they separated when I was nine, even though I remained close to him, him and my mom. And it's what's really interesting is that he had this life where he felt very watched. He felt very insecure. He had been told many times you could just disappear if you ever tell anybody anything. Um, he was 100% confident that there were men in black. Um and that they were watching him. Um, he wow. raised a kid who went on to get a PhD and become a professor who is very <laughs> funny. You can sort of think like, I'm not like my dad at all. But then when you think about it, I'm actually wrestling with the same question. Did he ever talk about the Roswell crash of 47? Many times. We actually had good friends in Roswell um, who my father knew through his work. Um, so, we talked a lot about the Roswell crash. We talked a lot about the Socorro crash. Um, and then later on, we talked a lot about the Crawford, Texas sightings um, and the Mexico City sightings. He, he, he phoned in to several, you might want to say, sightings as being key moments when things changed. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. 
How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you, what do you think about Roswell, David? Roswell's a dangling set of keys to get your attention to look at it so that you don't look at something else. That's, that's, remember I said early in the conversation, he thought a lot of what people looked at in terms of ufology were sort of chasing, Mm -hmm. um, chasing ghosts to mix my metaphors. Um, he thought Roswell was a means by which the, the government allowed people to believe in things like little green men and let it turn into a sort of tourist circus sideshow because then it keeps the public sort of laughy in entertainment. And that's a much better, you might want to say, perspective for the public to have than an investigative, suspicious one. But was it real? Um, There was a real crash, and it did have bodies. You sound like but, you sound like you're you're holding back for a reason, are you? <laughs> well, I think that my father was worried for a real for a real reason, which is that he he thinks that the information that is the truth as as he saw it would actually be incredibly damaging um to the public face of the US government. If the if people knew that in the deserts of New Mexico the U.S. government or U.S. government contract groups were putting up in maneuverable drone-like planes humans who were perhaps on the spectrum or disabled functionally in some way, and knowing that that person was going to risk life for this experiment, I think in hindsight we'd not look very favorably on our own government. And that sort of information would, of course, lead for people to want to shut him up. I think that's what my dad's view was. So are you saying that your father has told you that Roswell was a real event, but it was created by us? These were our craft. These were our little so-called alien people. Yes, that's what my dad felt. My dad felt that... Could he have been wrong? Yeah, sure. Everyone could be wrong. My dad could have been wrong. We're talking about a person who knew that missile range like the back of his hand, right. like maybe less than another dozen people did. He did not read ufology. He did not watch, you know, ancient aliens. He, he was not engaged in the popular consumption of ufology stuff. He, when I would say to him, oh, you mean it's like the Nick Redford book? He didn't know who that was. He didn't know what that book was about. But he was telling a story about scientists who were German, who were living in old ranchers' homes that were taken by eminent domain, 
and that they were living on the range and using the same technology that they had been working on in Germany and in Brazil and in Japan about manless space flight and that the technology did not enable them to do certain things, you might want to say, by remote control. So you needed someone in that vehicle who could at most press a button or two or change the course through some sort of joystick-like feature. But in the end, that, that, that vehicle might not be coming down safely, if in fact there was a means to come down safely at all. Because the point was to test something like speed, velocity, altitude, and landing was not really a big concern for the people who were doing the science. What did he tell you, David, about the Socorro, New Mexico case? You brought that up a couple times, and that, of course, was the witness was a police officer, Lonnie Zamora, who's no longer with us. It was that case that convinced Dr. J. Ellen Hynek that there was some reality behind all of this. But what did your dad tell you? Well, that is the actual nurse that my dad took me to meet and interview. Um, wow. She didn't speak English. She only spoke Spanish. Um, she told me a story where she was like, literally while she's telling me the story, crying and running a rosary through her hands. And she's, she's literally on the verge of breaking down while telling me the story that she was working that night. And she worked in Socorro at the uh, medical hospital there, and they brought in two bodies. And her and her friend, you know, at this time, in New Mexico, you probably had to have a, at most, two-year degree or possibly even just secondary education with a lot of training to be a nurse. And you have to realize that this time in New Mexico, which my generation goes, my family goes back four generations, I know rural New Mexico really well. At this time, you could have had like an eighth grade education, but been a midwife or been a rancher's nurse hand or wet nurse for a while, and then ended up being a triage nurse, which she was. And bodies were brought in, and they were smaller than what she said normal humans' bodies were. They seemed to have a type of Asiatic or Asian eyelid. They had large foreheads. They were, and this is when she started crying a little, they were breathing. And she said several times, they're breathing, they were breathing. You have to realize they were breathing. And there were cuts all over them. And there was white stuff coming out of them, but it wasn't red. And that was really shocking to her and her, her, her co-worker. And they had called for a doctor to get to the hospital as soon as possible. And while they were on the phone trying to get you know, someone there or trying to call someone to get there. And I don't know at that time whether that meant getting in the car to go get him or what. But during that time, a truck pulled up with a flatbed and two men came out in military gear and they had in their hand bags and they unzipped the bags and they shoved the bodies into them and then flung them over their shoulder and then flung them harshly or hardly onto the back of the truck and drove away. And she was crying and halfway doing this rosary and telling the story that she was so sad that they were breathing. Don't we understand they were breathing? That's like she was still really stuck on that. They probably weren't they were... breathing after that episode, though. Exactly. 
And exactly. And, you know, here's this woman who's like, when I'm talking, when I'm hearing this story, to her, you know, I'm, I'm listening to it in Las Cruces, New Mexico. That's where I met her. I'm recording it, and I'm, at the time, I think I'm 32. And I'm just blown away that I'm getting this firsthand. And she's, you know, telling the story and probably trying to reconcile Catholic worldviews and <laughs> Jesus and aliens and U.S. military. And, and so I think that it's like, it's like in my Alien Psychics and Ghost class, when we look at all the cases of abduction around the world, when we look at, you know, Carol and Alice, when we look at the CDB Bryan book, when we look at the testimonies from Brazil or, or, or people who had been taken up in Florida back in the, the late 60s, these are real lives. These are, these are the sort of testimonies that would win a court case. And yet, in so many ways, we just push them aside like they can't be real. And there's no way that anything about them can at all be true. And if I dare assert that they might be true, I won't be listened to by anyone at SETI ever again. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich friend Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts Or wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> 